ASAP is meaningless. If everything is as soon as possible, people have a tendency to say, <laughs> well, how important is this? Well, it needs to be done immediately or ASAP. But if everything has the highest priority, <laughs> nothing has any priority. And I still remember that to be really careful when someone says, how high priority is this to be really honest. Welcome to Digital Surfing, the podcast that features digital leaders and their highs and lows as they ride the wave of their career in digital. I'm your host, Darren Smith, and today's guest is Phoebe Scott, who is the Global Director of CRM at Avison Young. Highlights from today for me include talking about her recommendations business and turning a profit, talking about the book Rework and how everybody seems to want everything ASAP, and then lastly, how she is working with Avison Young to take the company from thinking like a real estate company to thinking like a technology company. So let's go and meet Phoebe. Phoebe, uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Darren. I'm going to start off with a question around CRM. CRM is customer relationship management. I think a lot of people think when they think CRM, they think technology. But CRM is so much more about the philosophy and the frameworks and the methodologies, you know, that go around with it. It's about like enabling people to provide amazing customer experiences. Now, I find your background really interesting. I mean, like uh, a recovering attorney, an aspiring psychologist, you've been an entrepreneur more than once. How has that background really set you up to understand and, and craft CRM experiences? Yeah, um, it is it is a circuitous path I took to get here. Um, <laughs> I will say that being a lawyer, and I was very lucky that when I was starting out, my, my dad actually gave me this advice because he was a reformed attorney that ended up in a different field too. And he said, you know, no matter what, if you don't practice law, you'll never regret having this degree because it changes the way you think. And that's true. Mm-hmm. So lawyers think about the world as opportunities to solve problems. Um, you research really thoroughly. You don't really take no as an answer ever. If you don't want to hear it, you're always trying to figure out how, how to make the world that you, that, you know, world work for you, I guess is a good way to put it. And so that's definitely, you know, every time I've been presented with a large challenge, whether it was as an entrepreneur or now working in the corporate world, that background helps me figure, take my own path and, and make mm. my own way. Um, And then the same thing as being an entrepreneur was it really shaped a confidence about making my dreams real. So if you, if I see something and I think it can be done better, um, it was actually Mm -hmm. one of the things I found hardest about law was that if you want to make things more efficient or better, there's not really, that's not really the way that the field is structured when you're practicing corporate law. But when you're in the entrepreneurial world, that's everything, you know, Mm -hmm. envision how the world can be different and better and make it so. And that, so those two things combined, I think have made it so that when I'm approaching a problem like this, you know, rolling out a global CRM, which is very challenging, particularly in the commercial real estate industry, the, the, all of those experiences have rolled together to make it a challenge I'm not afraid of, I guess is the best way to put it. And then yeah. the psychology piece I didn't even touch on, sorry, <laughs> but I will if you want. Talking about kind of uh, commercial real estate and being an entrepreneur, coming up with an idea for a new product or service in a world where everything exists. It's so difficult to come up with a new idea. And then commercial real estate, also such a crowded space. Like, so, you know, I think, you know, would you agree that, you know, it's all about differentiation on customer experience? And I suppose CRM is the enabler to that. Oh, absolutely. And everything's about execution. So you have to not only see the way something can be different, but you have to 
work uh, efficiently and tirelessly towards your goal. You have to be able to course correct every time you realize you've made a mistake, you have to change it. And, um, you know, I think our CIO at Avis and Young said to me when I joined, you have to build the plane while it's flying. And that, that's exactly how you have to look at this stuff. You know, the plane is in midair and you may have to switch out an engine, but you just have to do it. And mm -hmm. there's, yeah, that's sometimes <laughs> it's the only way, but you got to just be willing to take the risk and do what's right. And I suppose going back to that uh, kind of psychology uh, element, that's where you just kind of really need to understand the market that you're targeting and kind of what, what could potentially delight them. Yeah, absolutely. And that for us, that's, both our end, our customers, but that's also our brokers. So we're, we're, you know, in commercial real estate, the interesting thing about our business is that you're looking at companies that are structured, you know, a global company where everyone is part of the same brand, but their businesses run like, you know, like they're all consultants or they're all, they're all independent contractors mm. because they, they eat what they kill. So you're looking at a bunch of people who are competing with each other and they're competing for what you, what you noted as a very crowded space. So you have to find a way to make it appealing to work together and to, mm -hmm. to strategize together and also be willing to um, expose your business to other people because it's not a business that is historically built around collaboration and sharing your information and sharing your intel and, and your clients, but that's the way the world is going. So in order mm -hmm. to stay competitive in you know, a space that's increasingly being changed by technology, you have to change the psychology of the way people approach business and say, even though it's scary to share what you know with your neighbor and the other people in your business who you've historically competed with, you're mm -hmm. gonna do better on the global scale if you find a way to do that. Mm -hmm. So sticking on the kind of new technology theme, I mean, like you were getting into your career and so on when 37 Signals was was taking off and you referenced kind of reading uh, rework and how that made such an impact on, on like how you manage then and how you're managing now even. And so you've, you know, you've got this airplane up in the sky that you're building at the same time and you need to keep it up there. I'm, I'm interested to know like that inspiration from the rework book, like how, how do you manage? Like, what does it mean when you say you manage, you still manage today differently because of that book? Oh yeah. The, so there are a couple, the book is, if anyone has not read it, it's, it's done really cleverly. It's a different illustrations or cartoons, and then a, a short chapter that's written in really catchy, but easy and quick and to the point about rules for successful business or for a well-run business. One of my favorite ones I still think about all the time was that meetings are toxic. <laughs> I think everyone can relate to that or could relate to it before COVID. And now with everything being conducted on Zoom, you know, I, I remember someone was saying recently, you know, there was a productivity spike when we first started everyone working from home on Zoom, but then it, then there was a huge drop because it's exhausting. It's emotionally exhausting. It's mentally exhausting, really mm. hard to do your work after being on screen and for hours on end. So I think finding a way to reduce meetings and make it so you're collaborating with people and you are still gaining from the a group working together. There is a lot of magic that happens when a group of people work together, but finding a way to do that without spending all of your time in what can be very emotionally draining meetings is critical. So I still remember that, you know, all these years later. Yeah. And then and the other one was that ASAP is meaningless. If everything is as soon as possible, people have a tendency to say, <laughs> well, how important is this? Well, it needs to be done immediately or ASAP. But if everything has the highest priority, <laughs> nothing has any priority. And I still remember that to be really careful when someone says, how high priority is this? To be really honest, 
even if I want it done and even if I want it done immediately, if it's not mm. immediate need, I'm, I'm, I could, you know, make it so that people don't find anything. In fact, immediate, it's sort of like the boy who cried wolf, I guess, but the professional version. I love that. I love that. It must have been quite challenging. I mean, I, I want to switch to talking about kind of Lordville, the app that you launched and, um, and we can go into the details of what it is in just a second. But I'm interested, you know, as an entrepreneur, were you trying to drive out market share and differentiation? How did you fight that urge to not say everything is ASAP? Well, I wasn't so good at it back then, to be honest. So that was when I was first starting out and I was learning how to manage people more effectively, particularly when you're using, you know, your own money, friends and family's money, you know, investors that you have made commitments to. Everything does feel really urgent as it should. So I had to kind of learn that on the fly as well and start to, mm-hmm. to really, and also not want to do everything all at once and be all things to all people. That was one of the hardest lessons I learned early on was, to really pick one thing, even if it feels too simple and do that extremely well before moving on and trying to eat the whole elephant as another one of my of my good friends says about <laughs> the approach to rolling out a product that is too aggressive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So tell me about the, 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 the business and the product. What, what, what is it all about? Laudville was a entertainment recommendation platform. So it was all forms of entertainment at the time that was movies, TV, music, and books. And it connected to a variety of different platforms that actually provided the entertainment. So your Hulu, Netflix, Amazon, et cetera. And then it also connected to social networks. So at the time that would have been Facebook and Twitter primarily, and would look at your social connections and as well as your history to find recommendations that were closer to what a human being would recommend. So if I know you and we have a mutual friend and you guys tend to like a lot of the same things and, you know, our mutual friend just said to me, Oh, you know, I, I just watched this movie. It was amazing. I would recommend it to you because I already have this feeling of why you might also like it. That's more human based. It's not just tags of, you know, I tend to like comedies and I tend to like, you know, comedies with whatever, you know, with your, all your check boxes with a female lead or something, then you're never going to make serendipity for people. If you're taking what they already know they like, and then just giving them more of it, you have to find those connections of, you know, if we have a Venn diagram of things in common, something that's outside of our overlap that you enjoy, I, I might find, you know, a serendipitous relationship with where it's like, I never would have thought to try that, but I actually love it. And that, that was the, that was the theory of Laudville and that's how the technology worked. And uh, yeah, it was a fun, really fun ride. I wish you would have sold that to Amazon because Kindle just keeps on recommending the same type of books to me. And I've, I've actually stopped reading a bit because I'm bored of the same genre and yeah, it, it, it would take, I mean, like if, if they could get information from my network, it would be so much better. That technology sounds fairly complex. I mean, did you have, was the company consisting mostly of software engineers? How did, how was the setup of that business? Yeah, it was, it was mostly engineers and um, we were spending either half of the time on the user experience of it all, the design, making something that was really easy and simple and, and slick to use. And then half of the time making, adjusting the algorithms to make them more accurate and more human like, but you know, what you said is sort of interesting today, still so many people say to me, and I feel like this all the time when I'm looking for new and new recommendations. I wish I could have sold it to someone and they would have used it and it would still be around today because we still need it. The need is still there. The hard thing I learned, and that was, I think, one of my most 
valuable, but, but also disappointing lessons to learn is that it's not always about solving the problem. So the technology and creating a, an algorithm that was really smart and a user experience that was great, that was hard. But the harder part, which I wasn't able to get around, was understanding the business and what drives it. And that so many of the entertainment brands that we know and love and all those platforms we use make the recommendations they do for very complex reasons that have more to do with their inner workings and their finances than they do what makes the customer happy. And I didn't really, I really assumed that it was not that way. I had a very kind of idealistic view of that business and learned pretty quickly that um, it's not always that way. I find that really, really interesting. I've never thought of it that way myself in that if you think of a traditional retailer, people that put product on the shelf often pay to be on kind of the middle shelf, eye level shelf, and not that kind of top shelf. So where I suppose where you think in the digital world, where you're thinking, ah, this is a recommendation for me, but it's most likely being almost like a sponsored post, like put in front of you because someone wants you to see it. Is that kind of the concept behind it? Absolutely. And it also has to do with licensing fees. So I would recommend to you the item that's the cheapest for me to license because I have to pay per view at the time. Anyway, a lot of those platforms are structured that way where they would have to pay whoever owns the entertainment per view. And so I want you to watch the things that are the cheapest for me to pay for, because I'm still getting my same monthly amount out of you, whether whatever I'm ending, you know, giving you. So as long as I give you something that's good enough that you'll come back for more, but that's not so expensive that I kill my profit, I'm doing well. But that doesn't necessarily mean I'm giving you the things that you're going to like the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and was that business model from your side based on a ad sales? Is that how you were funding the end users using it? Yes, ad sales and then marketing data as well, because we were collecting, aggregating a lot of really interesting and valuable information about what people like and where the crossover is. You know, there are a lot of cool places it could have gone, especially today. You know, this is now uh, about 10 years ago. And today, data science is in such a more interesting place. I mean, we have so much more capabilities there. And also, it's just people are more aware of it. It's, It's gotten more attention. So I think today, a business like that would have a lot more legs and a lot more interest in it. But at the time it was more about the ad dollars and we were trying to push it in a way of saying, look, but we're actually gathering these really interesting intel on people. Um, Mm -hmm. If we can't monetize it today, we can certainly monetize it in a few years and big time. But, you know, they're also, we had the age old problem of being underfunded. So most startups die from due to underfunding and ours was one of those. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I actually, uh, you remind me of, of one of my first ventures. It was called Load the Show, which was a free music download platform, but legal. Um, it was a, at the same time of Napster and those type of things and died for the exact same reason. We actually had so many downloads, we couldn't sell enough advertising, couldn't fund it. And I suppose the lesson I learned there was I got carried away with the cool tech and I should have been focusing on building a sales team to sell the ads. <laughs> Maybe it would still be in existence if I'd done that. But yeah, all very good lessons learned along the way. And so now your latest gig is at Everson Young. Tell me more about your role there. Yeah, so I was brought on to, I've been working on apps and commercial real estate for the past few years and decided I wanted to get out of consulting and go in-house somewhere. And Avis and Young was the perfect match of a company that is large enough that it's really putting real resources towards digital transformation, 
um, but small enough and nimble enough that and willing to take risks that we're doing really interesting, really cool things, putting together really teams to, to approach problems like a tech company and, and less like a real estate firm and more like a tech company. So, you know, a lot and a lot of companies in commercial real estate and some of the other industries that are, are in the early phases of digital transformation say that, but it's really hard to find a place where they really are putting, uh, you know, putting the rubber to the road. And that's absolutely what we have. So really interesting, a very creative team of people putting together a number of different technologies that work together to help our brokers do better, sell better, use more intelligence, you know, understand the global real estate environment in a way that wasn't really previously available. And then also we're creating a lot more living data and interesting data about cities and about buildings and about how, what the makeup is like today and where it's going in the future. So my job is to roll out our first CRM, which at first sounds kind of you know, what's interesting about that CRM has been around a long time. It's not particularly aggressive or technology, and it's not really changing that much. But for us, it's the technology is a means to an end. And it's a really about a cultural shift and a very significant cultural shift. What I touched on earlier with just this taking a field that has historically not been collaborative and teaching people to trust not only the technology, but each other and to trust that by doing that, we can go farther in a world that I think, you know, now we're all used to having such advanced communication and collaboration and, and openness. We all have kind of an open kimono on our phones, or if we have Alexa or Google Home, you know, everyone is, we have a certain amount of exposure, I guess, on a, on a daily mm-hmm. basis, but that still hasn't made its way into people's work lives that much. Mm-hmm. So now we're asking people to be pretty open and to share the secret sauce of their work with their colleagues, which is a really big cultural shift, but it's one that our leadership team is really behind. Our executive committee is very behind and, and all of the people from, you know, every uh, salesperson here, even if they have a hard time adjusting to it at first, once they start to see the magic of it mm-hmm. are really willing to change. So very exciting stuff. Yeah. And it's an exciting period of time. I mean, like the commercial real estate industry post-COVID must be changing hugely where you're looking at more remote work, uh, hot desk in those type of considerations. Maybe there's in residential type, there's like kind of work play type situations in buildings and so on. And I suppose, you know, you, you're starting to also get, I think you're going to start getting like kind of global nomads that, you know, can, like if you work for Google now and Google head office, what's stopping you from going to the to Germany and how's your buildings and so on going to facilitate that? And I suppose that and maybe my question is, is that part of what's driving kind of the need and desire to get the like people from different cities and countries just collaborating more as, as opposed to operating as silos? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there's the, the world is changing so that, you know, in the US, we have people who are on the East Coast that are putting together commercial funds, investing in residential portfolios of properties on the West Coast. And that's just, you know, that's within the United States, but you have investor dollars going across borders, across oceans, you know, it's really 
the way that we are looking at commercial real estate is very, very global, but within the industry, it, it's hard to get insights into the business across the globe because of the historical culture of the business. So that's absolutely driving the way that we do what we do. And it's also to get a sense of in different parts of the world, the post-COVID reality will look very different. So in some places, that is an increase in flexible office spaces and in home work, uh, you know, hybrid solutions. In some places, that's, you know, an, an increasing amount of industrial space in, in ways that weren't really, you know, didn't get that much attention before. I think, you know, we're all, when you say it, people kind of go, oh yeah, that makes a ton of sense with the way that we you know, we're all at home ordering things, you know, on Amazon all the time. And we've all seen how they've ex exceeded every, every expectation of how they would grow throughout COVID. But that means that spaces are being reconceived because all of that, that shift in culture means we have to use space differently and it has to change hands more frequently. So while the traditional office leasing a business has certainly changed and it may not be the star of the show, you know, always, there are so many other ways that, you know, commercial real estate's never going to go anywhere. It touches every corner of the globe, every country, every city. So the question is, how is that space going to be used and who is going to be able to get enough data on what's happening on a global perspective to make, you know, a 30,000 foot view decision about how to, where to invest, understanding where the business is going and how it's going to yeah. keep changing. Well, wow, that's really interesting. I, I we we only have I think time for one question. Maybe I can squeeze in two. So two quick fire questions. So you 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 mentioned kind of user adoption there and change in mindset and culture of actually using a system. Like, how are you going about that? I know it's a big question and you need to answer quick fire style. But how how are you going kind of about that? So a big part of what we're doing is making sure that there are people on the ground in every city that we are rolling out in to make sure that everyone has a touch point, a real human being that can help them with change and that can show them what's in it for them. You know, I think to, historically we have approached technology as, you know, this is really cool. You should use it. We do get obsessed with the tech. And so... Mm -hmm. We are trying very much to focus on, no, the technology is cool, but it's a means to an end. The, the cool thing here is the business and how incredibly talented, how incredibly hardworking and what a really amazing group of salespeople we have worldwide. Technology is just there to help them do what they're already doing in a very impressive way. So it's about shifting that narrative to say, you know, you're what makes this business so cool. Here's some technology that helps you do you better. Oh, that is awesome. So to leave us today with uh, your one kind of single piece of advice that you want to leave us with, what would that be? It's probably a little bit cheesy, but it's just to dream big. I'm definitely somebody who has always seen where things could be. I, I really have always seen the world the way I wish it was, not necessarily the way it is. And they're all along the way, there will always be people who tell you that your dreams aren't realistic or that you need to make them a little bit smaller, but I think to always keep in mind, you know, if you have an end vision of what could be, keep that in mind, work toward it every day. Even if you only make one baby step today, do it. And then don't be afraid to change the engine while the plane is in flight, because you're probably going to have to do stuff like that to get there. <laughs> that is such good advice. Um, Phoebe, thank you so much for joining us on Digital Surfing today. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me, Darren. This has been a pleasure.